Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. If I said I'm going to preach this morning about the day that God blacked out the sun, you just might think I'm going to speak about the solar eclipse. Uh, the first, they say, to ever to be seen only in the United States and nowhere else, and it happens tomorrow. Um, but I've got to tell you, I'm not that excited about it. I know there are some that are all excited, and there are some that are trying to make some prophetic meaning out of it and extending warnings to churches and just like they always do when something unusual is going to happen, and some can be quite emphatic about their belief that this is going to happen, that that's going to happen. Uh, but I, I'm not too excited about that. I, I don't care whether I see it or not, and uh, really doesn't interest me. Uh, of course, I'm odd. Uh, I, I'm this fellow that was outside the Louvre in Paris and didn't care whether he went in or not. I was just a little ways from Niagara Falls and said, I don't care whether I see it or not. I, he said, well, what would keep you from doing that? I went fishing. I'd really go fishing stand there watching a bunch of water run over a rock, you know. So, you know, the eclipse might really excite you, but that and that's all right. That's all right. But this morning, I'm going to talk about something much, much more important than that. I'm going to talk about the darkest day in all of history. And um, as to what day that is, there, is a, uh, there are a lot of different opinions and a lot of debate. There have been numerous lists that have been compiled trying to decide what, what day, what time, what event was the greatest tragedy, uh, you know, upon the earth, the most horrendous thing imaginable. And, and let me tell you, just save your time. You don't need to go to Google and try to find out, you know, what it is. That's a waste of time because there's one that stands head and shoulders above all of the rest. The darkest day in all of history took place on a rocky hill just outside of Jerusalem, a place called Golgotha. We're talking about the day that Jesus died, the day when God blacked out the sun. Notice verse, chapter 27, verse 33. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, which uh, when he had uh, tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And, and then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. 
And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their, their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildeth it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same at his teeth. And now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabathani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. If ever there was a time that we stood on holy ground, it's now when we read this account. And I have to tell you, I never feel more inadequate than I do whenever I try to preach about the cross. Because from the very beginning, I'm at a loss for words. uh, It's impossible for me to describe the sacrifice and the suffering of Christ. I can turn back in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 53, and I can read that, that very vivid account of what took place on the cross. But I can't understand it. And I can't explain it. Doctors can describe at least to some measure his physical suffering. And I have several different accounts written by different doctors as they've tried to describe step by step the process of his suffering and the agony of it and exactly how everything happened. But when all is said and done, they haven't even touched the hem of the garment. Because all they can do is to look at the outward suffering, the physical suffering, and they know nothing about the inward suffering that is beyond our comprehension. And yet, as inadequate as I feel to to even preach from these verses today, I'm compelled by love and I'm commanded by the Lord to do it. You know, some maybe some people think that it is a great delight to stand up and to, and to speak about and try to describe the suffering of Christ. And, and, and while on one hand there is a, there's, there's a, a thrill in your heart to think about the fact that he did that for us, yet there is a great pain to consider the terrible, horrible injustice that was brought upon him on that day. 
So that's why I say I'm compelled by love, and yet I'm commanded by the Lord. It's my duty, but it's also my delight. And the reason it's my delight, because I know this is the only hope for sinful man. This is the only message in all of the world that is going to save people. The only message is going to literally change people. And of all of the days in history, there are none that can compare to the day Jesus died. Make no mistake about it, though. His suffering did not start that day. His suffering started even before that. And I want you to get the big picture this morning. I want you to take into consideration the fact that even if you go way back before the beginning of creation, when God, who knows all, laid out a plan for man's redemption. And that's why the Bible speaks about Christ being the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And, and so this is not some emergency plan that God had to kick into gear because things have gotten out of hand. This is something that God knew about even before Adam and Eve were created. Think about that. And God had already devised a plan. You see, God's never surprised. God knows the end from the beginning. None of that surprised God. He knew what was going to happen, and He made plans to provide a remedy for it. So when we speak about the suffering of Christ, there are several things that we need to take into consideration. We need to think about the anticipatory suffering of Christ. That is what he anticipated. Remember, when he was born into this world, he knew exactly why he was here. Nobody had to announce to him his mission in life. He knew why he came into this world. He lived in the shadow of the cross. Whenever he looked at, uh, at thorns, no doubt it reminded him, one day they're going to crown me with a crown of thorns. When he looked at the nails, no doubt it reminded him one day they're going to drive the spikes into my hands and feet. Whenever he handled the, handled the rough timbers or even saw a tree, it reminded him, no doubt, that one day he would be nailed to the cross. As he watched as they took the little lambs up as sacrifices, it reminded him that one day I'll be the sacrifice. You see, from the time that he came into this world, he lived in the constant awareness and anticipating what was going to happen on that final day when he was crucified. But then there's the agony of Gethsemane. We think about our Lord having gathered his disciples into the upper room and just before He's taken by wicked hands and crucified. He gathers them in the upper room and speaks words of comfort to them. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. And remember the promise that He made. He said, If I go away, I will come again. That's what we were singing about a while ago. You see, God's not through yet. He's coming back again. But our Lord was working, as it were, to try to encourage them and to help them understand because they're confused by all of this. 
Oh, they know He's the Messiah. They've placed their trust in Him. The Bible says they have forsaken all to follow Him. But at this point, they still don't understand. Jesus said He must needs to go to Jerusalem. And the Bible says Peter literally took hold of Him and said, Not so, Lord. We're not going to let you go. He was going to try to prevent the crucifixion. He didn't understand at this point. And so the Lord has met with them. And now the meeting is over. And they cross the brook Ketron, dark waters. And there they enter into the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of the olive press, a place of great sorrow where Jesus prayed in sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And finally there, the prayer being ended, there is the crackling of the underbrush, the flickering of the torches, and suddenly they can hear men approaching And it's Judas Iscariot as he's betrayed the Lord and leads the soldiers to where he's at and betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus said, Whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's significant because it was said, Out of Nazareth can come no good thing. They didn't say we're looking for Christ. We're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the one that came to save us. We're looking for Jesus. They used His earthly name. Jesus said, I am. Think about that for a little while. I am. And they went backwards and fell to the ground. And they found themselves at the mercy of Christ. And yet the Bible says that He surrendered Himself into their hands. And so now we move from the the anticipatory suffering to the agony in Gethsemane to the alleged trials that go on through the night. In fact, there are six different trials, illegal trials going on through the night. This is the time of which John wrote whenever he said he came unto his own and his own received him not. What a painful thing that must have been to be rejected by your very own people. The Jews. The Jews who of all people should have recognized him when he came. These are the very people that are described in chapter 23 of the book of Matthew where there on yonder hill Jesus looks out over the city of Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as He wept over them, how many times He said, I would have gathered you as a hen doth her chicks, and you would not. They rejected Him, and He goes from one trial to another trial. He is falsely accused, and He is beaten. The beard is plucked from his face. He is scourged with a cat of nine tails. And then finally he's crowned with thorns, smitten with a rod, and compelled to carry his cross. You see him yonder as he staggers underneath the load of the cross and they call one to come and to help him carry the cross as it were. And finally they arrive there on Golgotha and he's nailed to the cross and lifted up and dropped with a thud into the hole that's been prepared. And there he hangs 
And this is where we begin to see the actual physical suffering of the Lord. Having suffered all of this, he hangs there on Calvary, nailed to a cross. For six long hours, those six hours may be divided into two groups of three hours each. We see the first three hours that it's described for us. And it tells us that his garments have been stripped from him. And then they divide the garments among four soldiers. Then they cast lots for the seamless robe. Have you ever thought about whoever it is that might have won that robe and they left there that day thinking they are a winner when in fact they're actually a loser to think that while the world's greatest event, the world's greatest tragedy, the world's greatest sacrifice is taking place, he is gambling for a garment. And then the scoffers begin to pass by And it says that they were wagging their heads and railing against him. They're mocking him as he hangs there on the cross. The chief priests, that is the religious leaders among the people, they mocked Pilate's inscription. You remember that Pilate had written Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and they said, it should read, He said, I am King of the Jews so as to discredit him in every imaginable way. And there he hangs on the cross. All of his joints are pulled out of socket. It's what the Bible tells us. All of his joints were dislocated, pulled out of socket. There was the intense pain, a seesaw motion, as he hangs there on the cross, shifting his weight back and forth from his feet and pulling with his arms till he's exhausted and then it's back to his feet and that weight shifting back and forth and finally the muscles fatigue. They give out. They can only take so much. His breathing becomes difficult. I mention this because this is a slow suffocation. He can't breathe. And here he is hanging on the cross. The Bible says his visage is marred more than any man. You couldn't recognize him. And he hangs there. The muscles on his back hanging like blood red icicles. And them mocking the Son of God. And this goes on for three long hours it tells us. But then comes the final three hours. Look in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. You see, we've been talking about the the emphasis being upon the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of a sudden, there is a shift of emphasis here. It's not so much now on the physical, but rather on the spiritual And it's as though God the Father is saying to the world, you've seen enough. And he just pulls a canopy of darkness over the earth. And there our Lord hangs in darkness for three long hours. His suffering was shocking. I say it's shocking because the Bible tells us that he suffered at the hands of the Father. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him 
He hath put him to grief. And although it was through human instrumentality, the Jews and the Romans alike, it was God Himself who orchestrated this entire event. And who can understand it when it says it pleased the Lord to bruise Him and to put Him to grief? You see, for the first time in all of eternity, the fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken. Darkness covered the land. It's as though God turned His back on the Son. And perhaps you're wondering why it is that Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was He confused? Oh, no. He was not confused at all. He knew exactly what was going on. He was simply letting them know that all of this was a fulfillment. Remember, he's quoting something from the Old Testament there. And this is a fulfillment of what had been prophesied earlier. And if they'd had a brain in their head, they would have saw at that moment, folks, we've made a horrible mistake. We've crucified an innocent man. This is the Messiah. You see, there was purpose behind that statement, not confusion. And the Father has turned His back on the Son because the Bible says He is of purer eyes than to behold and to look upon iniquity. And remember, the sins of the world were placed upon Him. That's why I say His his, uh, suffering was shocking that God would turn His back on Him. It was also spiritual. Verse 11, chapter 53 says, He shall see the travail of his soul. You better believe that God observed every moment of his physical suffering, every lash of the whip that tore away the muscles of his back. God was watching that. God was watching whenever they drove the nails into his hands and into his feet. God was watching all of that. But notice, God sees something that that nobody else could see. He saw the travail of His soul. He saw what was going on inside. The spiritual suffering and agony. You see, we try to understand to what great degree Jesus suffered, and it's impossible. It's impossible because none of us can comprehend the greatness of God's holiness. How holy is God? You'll never figure that out. That's why we don't understand how serious sin is because we don't understand how holy God is. And that's why we can never fully grasp the greatness of the suffering that Jesus Christ went through there on the cross because it's not just about the physical, it's about the fact that God Himself refused to look upon God in the flesh. He is suffering our hell for us, our torment. Also, His sacrifice, thank God, was sufficient. Isaiah 53.11 says, And he shall be satisfied. Remember, it said, He shall see the travail of his soul, and notice, and be satisfied. For the first time in all of history, God was able to look upon a sacrifice and be completely satisfied with its sufficiency. 
You see, that gave God the basis to justify sinful man. Otherwise, there would have never been a means whereby that man could be justified in the sight of God. Never a way that we could come unto God. Never a way that we could be forgiven, delivered from hell, and assured of heaven. That would have all been impossible. And after all of these years and all of the blood that was shed from the animals, after all of this time... For the very first time, God was able to look at a sacrifice and say, it's good enough. I'm satisfied. That's all that it takes. You know, it's no wonder that we sang those grand old hymns, Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. And we sing at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. We sing the old rugged cross. Jimmy Davis, the governor, years ago used to sing, Are you living in the shadow of the cross? And the list goes on and on and on of those hymns that that we sing that speak about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul said, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else to brag about. You see, the cross is the vindication of divine justice. I mean, there had to be some grounds upon which God, who is holy, could accept man who is sinful. God couldn't just arbitrarily do that or His holiness would be be tarnished, be defiled. God wouldn't be God. That's why the Bible says that God, now listen to this, God is just and the justifier of sinners. He's able to to maintain His holiness at the same time devise a mean through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that He can be vindicated in divine justice. It's a display of divine love. Where would you ever go to see any greater display of love than on the cross? It's the only means of removing guilt. So many people have so many different ideas about religion. There's so many different denominations, and one teaches this and one teaches that. There are those that say, you, you know, you've got to be baptized, you've got to do penance, you've got to join the church, you've got to be a good neighbor, you've got to do all of these things. And I'm telling you all that you, all you need to do and all you can do is to put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. This is the only means of removing your guilt. You can join every church in the county, give every penny that you have, do everything that you're able to do, and it'll never be enough. The Bible describes all of our good works All of our righteousnesses, and that is in the plural, describes them as filthy rags. Just imagine if we could accumulate all of the good works, all of the good deeds, all of the good things that could be said about all of the people, and we bring all of those things up before the Lord and lay them 
at His feet and say, Lord, shall this gain me entrance into heaven? And He would say, Depart from me, ye worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But yet just one drop of that precious incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ there on the mercy seat in the throne of heaven. Just that one drop and God says, that's enough. I'm satisfied. Come in, my child. It's the only means whereby our guilt can be removed. That's why it's the object of our faith. Amen? When we talk about the cross, we're talking about all that Jesus did. Look, we're not looking for religion to save us or our good works to help us. This is our door of hope. This is our source of rest. This is the creator of enthusiasm as it was for our life. In other words, that's the thing that causes us to devote ourselves to the will of God for the rest of our life. Yeah, it's no wonder Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. It's no wonder that we, that we love to sing those grand old hymns. But let me tell you, the wonder of wonders is that Jesus loves me. Oh, that songwriter knew what he was talking about. The wonder of wonders that Jesus loved me. When He was hanging there on that cross when He paid our sin debt, it's as though Jesus is saying, this is your sin I'm bearing. This is your curse that I'm suffering. This is your debt that I'm paying. This is your death that I'm dying. This is your hell that I am enduring. This is your salvation that I'm securing. This is your deepest need that I'm meeting. We, we, we get so concerned about things that are of really no eternal value whatsoever. We have a great interest in our health. We fear that we might die. We take interest in our wealth. We fear that we might have to do without and even suffer in some way. But let me tell you, All of those other things pale in comparison to the significance of what Jesus Christ did when He died on the cross. What He did was for the sake of meeting the deepest need in your life. And there's nowhere else to turn. No place else to go. It's Him or nothing. That certainly was the darkest day in all of history for the devil. Because whenever Jesus cried, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost and he died, the Bible says he tasted death for every man, but he came to destroy the works of the devil. He initiated a plan to undo all that the devil and sin has done down through the years. And those who put their trust in Him shall become joint heirs of Jesus Christ. Think about that. The curse will be lifted. It will be gone. And forever and ever and ever we'll live in fellowship with the Lord, in sweet harmony with the Lord. And it's all because of what Jesus did on that dark day 
on Calvary. Do you know Him as your Savior this morning? Have you really, honestly, truly trusted Him and nothing else? You've placed your faith in His shed blood and you know without a doubt that if you died at this very moment that you'd go to be with the Lord. Do you know that? If you don't, I promise you, you can. You can. And you can settle it right here, right now, this morning by trusting Christ. And we're going to encourage you and invite you to do that just now. We're going to stand together, extend this invitation, and invite you to come. Our Father and our God, this morning we come to you realizing our unworthiness and our sinfulness. Lord, we realize that, that there would be no reason in all of the world for you to accept us except for the fact that Jesus paid it all. He paid our sin debt and made it possible for us to be accepted in the Beloved. Thank You for Your saving grace. And I pray just now that, Lord, for every unsaved person, a man, woman, some boy or girl, whoever it might be, that, Lord, You'd remove every hindrance Help them to forget about the hypocrites in the church. Help them to forget about my lack of ability. Help them to forget about all of their physical problems and needs. Help them to focus on the greatest need in their life, which is to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray you'll rebuke Satan and remove every hindrance and save somebody for Jesus' sake, for we beg it in His dear name. Amen. While